Has healthcare become unethical? How are you supposed to live ethical standards when you're pushed to the brink, when people that are leading you themselves are becoming unethical? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you feel like you're in survival mode and you, as a human, do something that you immediately regret and start to question yourself? But then you see others around you doing the same thing, and then you start to question, is there anything unethical? What is ethics? And where is the gray area that we get in trouble? How does that happen? And how can we undo it? And most importantly, prevent it from happening in the first place. What a way to start a podcast. We're going to have a light discussion. But this is such a huge topic that I'm not going to be doing this solo. I'm actually bringing in two of the world's leading experts on ethics that both are extraordinary people, uh, speaking colleagues of mine and dear friends. And I'm really, really excited for us to dive in on the topic of healthcare and ethics. So today I'm joined by two amazing professionals that you really are gonna enjoy. First is Margarita Gurry, PhD, CSP, the misbehavior expert who solves people problems. She's affectionately known as Dr. Red Shoe, which if you're watching the YouTube version of this, you'll see why. She is a global speaker, licensed psychologist, consultant, and trainer. Leaders and teams actually rely on her for her insight, her humor, and her wisdom to update communication skills needed to de-escalate crises, deal with difficult people, and lead ethically. She teaches array of programs, and she is going to rock your world. And secondly, a dear friend, Jonathan Goldson, who works with business leaders to build a culture of ethics, setting higher standards to limit liability while earning loyalty and trust, something I think all of us want. He's the author of Grappling with the Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity, and host of the podcast of the same name, Grappling with the Gray, which is exactly what we're going to do today. I love, by the way, his pseudonym, which is the Ethics Ninja, the Hitchhiking Rabbi, and the keynote speaker with over 3,000 years experience. Welcome to the Fit Pharmacist Healthcare Podcast, my friends. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. And speaking of ethics, I don't know how one judges if we're world um, known, but um, in in the minds of our families, we're world famous. So we'll stick to that. The impact you have in each of your industries and the industry I'm in, both industries of healthcare and as a professional speaker, the ripples that you make are transcending time and generations. So- by that standard and the fact that you are international, both of you, I, that's how I define global. Uh-huh. And I think that each of us have that same opportunity, whether you are a intern, whether you are a newly licensed pharmacist, physician, PA, nurse, on and on and on. The impact we have is incredible. However, there's a few factors that are beyond our control that can influence our reactions rather than our responses. And this is where we get into that gray area of ethics. Because when we learn about it in a classroom setting, it seems to be very black and white simple. Do the right thing and not the wrong thing. However, when you add a few doses of stress, 
being understaffed, being around people that seem to lack ethics, what are we to do? So the first thing I want to introduce and pose both of you is how are we supposed to uphold ethics when we are in an environment and not given the resources to do so? Have you ever had that happen with a client with that you have that you consulted with? I'd love to hear from whoever would like to jump in first. My ahead, first Dr. job as a psychologist, I had that experience. Um, and I was asked to cut some corners that were unethical. I was brand new. My license ink was not even dry. And I, I spoke with everyone who I could speak to, ended up giving them a few months with some ideas on how to fix it. They didn't fix it. So I resigned. I couldn't fix it. So I think there depends on what the issue is. I mean, there's some things we just can't live with. And it does affect some financial choices do affect patient care. And it's not just about um, being on our high horse. We have to think about the impact. They later on continue to refer to me and I was able to eventually discuss with them the importance of doing things in a more ethical way. So it took me five years, but I stayed at it. Beautiful. And there's a constant tension between holding up upholding our own personal standards and acknowledging the realities of our circumstances and you know i in in this doesn't pertain to to um, medicine particularly but in my own discussions of ethics there are lots of current events i would like to discuss but they're so polarizing that i know that by bringing them up i'm going to lose at least half the audience before i start so i have to self-censor I have to choose, you know, we call it picking your battles. And as Dr. Richard said, sometimes we simply have to say, I can't make this compromise. And I have to disassociate, disassociate myself from the situation. Other times we have to say, I'm not really compromising a core value. I'm just grappling with the messiness of human uh, conditions and human life. And, and I'm going to take a step back now in hope that I'm going to be able to position myself to take many steps forward moving on. There were two super key points that both of you made that I just want to extract from there. And Yonason, I think you really went to this line. And I think one of the biggest things that uh, pharmacists and healthcare professionals in particular have a real issue with is that of setting and more importantly, enforcing boundaries because we want to give that's in regardless of your professional background and setting. The reason we all got into it that we can connect with is we're, we're here to help other people. And oftentimes we feel like if we don't cross that line, if we don't dance instead of grapple in the gray, we're not really sacrificing ourselves and giving our all to help people thrive which is a lot of times what gets, I know for pharmacists especially, in trouble with burnout and feeling overworked and overstressed, the whole concept of self-care being selfish. If I take a break for lunch, I could be helping you know, another patient. So who am I to withhold that? But that simple concept gets translated into ethical situations. So the first thing I wanna know is, how do you set boundaries without feeling guilty 
And how do you enforce them when you feel so much pressure? And, and, and this ties in with a point that Dr. Redshoe made in that if you have that boundary and you know you tried and you it, it didn't work, leaving. The question that I think a lot of healthcare professionals are facing now, especially from the results of COVID, is they're wearing more hats, they're given less resources, and the demands from corporate or administration are becoming so intense that the margin for thought, the margin for analysis is getting so small, it almost seems like it's not there. So there's tons of both internal to help other people pressure, but also external pressure that you have to perform, you have to comply, you have to do all these things. And if you hesitate, it's a signal that you're not obeying, that you're standing out from what you're supposed to do and you're jeopardizing your job and the integrity of what you're doing. So big concepts there, you know, <laughs> I figured I'd just sprinkle a few minor things. Um, but seriously, two, two huge things. I'd love to hear uh, advice that you have for people that are literally in this right now. And that's leading them to consider being unethical because it is going on in their workplace or they have already done something unethical and feel like, oh, I've already crossed that line. There's no coming back. There's no way to rinse this stain out from my white coat. I have a friend as a, as a nurse, and he came to me with, with a, a challenge he was having that other nurses on his floor were not responding to patients' calls in a timely way. And he was handling more of these calls than he really was capable of handling. Um, you know, he wasn't able to do his other work. He wasn't able to serve each patient properly because he was scrambling to cover other colleagues who were not stepping up to do their jobs. And he was running himself ragged. And, and I said to him that hey, you have to, you have to, on one level, you have to take care of yourself. If you, if you exhaust yourself to the point of incapacitation, then you aren't serving anybody. You also have to recognize that you can't fix everything. And that by trying, what you're actually doing is you're enabling these other nurses to not feel their own responsibilities. And so in the short run, it may seem unethical to not respond to a particular call, but in the in the long run, you may end up doing more harm than good by taking on more than you can handle. There's more to look at that. Um, we cannot think of ourselves as the solution of one for everything. Mm. As much as we have our superhero capes on, uh, that is not only ego, but it's not possible because we come out not only burned out, we're harming the system. We're interfering with processes in place. If we think that we're the only solution, then we're not talking to the nurse manager or we're not going up the chain. So I think we're having an issue with response time. Um, we have to kick it up the chain of command. Now, if the chain of the command is also exhausted and underperforming or they've stopped caring because they're burned out, we have to kick it up to the next level. Then you get accused of being um, the problem. No matter what we do, there's going to be some conflict. And the rabbi and I talk about that all the time, that, that ethics lives in grappling with the problems, with the gray, the name of his book, Grappling with the Gray. And I think that let's look go to the issue of guilt. 
let's say then I feel guilty because I'm setting limits or I'm telling on someone. Well, you're not telling on someone. It's your medical duty to provide the best care. Since you're not the unit of one, you have to address the issue. Our goal isn't to not feel guilty. Our goal is to use guilt in service of the ego. Mm. I'm going to feel guilty if I'm exhausted and I don't do something well. I give the wrong medication or at the wrong time or give food before surgery, whatever. I mean, there's lots of reasons to feel guilty if you care, right? Yeah. So if I use that guilt and remind myself I can potentially do more harm, it is then easier to look at the institutional solutions for processes in place and try and revive those. We are not alone in medical healthcare. You know, the doctor and I often joke that she's Catholic. They deal in shame. I'm Jewish. We deal in guilt. And, <laughs> and, and as the doctor said, you know, guilt can be a very good thing. Yes. You know, and as I, I should feel frustrated and responsible because those are motivators and that preserves my humanity. But at the same time, I do have to recognize my limitations and not think that it's in my hands because then that just turns into arrogance. Yes, super, super huge points there. And I think you, uh, Dr. Rich, you said we have to use guilt in order to serve the ego. Can you talk a little That's bit? That's Freud. Freud yeah. came up with the concept guilt in service of the ego. So like, let's say mothers who don't want to take time off from their children, new fathers as well, they feel guilty. Well, take care of yourself so you can take care of the baby. And so you're using the guilt that you're going to have anyway for taking time off and saying how terrible it is for me to think that the baby deserves um, an exhausted parent. Um, so using the existing guilt to examine it as part of the stress of uh, or the tension that invites ethical discernment. Um, and let's face it, ethics is the tool by which we can grapple with the gray and end up thinking about not only the greater good, but what needs to happen in any moment. Yes. There's a, uh, there's a rabbi that uh, very influential in my life who was a very uh, successful psychiatrist, uh, founded a rehab organization. His name was Rabbi Abraham Tversky, passed away a year or two ago. And um, he points out the difference between sh shame and guilt. Mm. He says that guilt says, I made a mistake. And shame says, I am a mistake. And if I'm a mistake, then there's nothing I can do. It's gone. It's over. If I made a mistake, I can fix that. And we're all human. And we all make mistakes. And that's okay. In fact, the, the sages teach us that every doctor, you might not want me to say this, every doctor deserves the death penalty. Because at some point in a medical career, it's virtually inevitable. You're going to make some wrong call that's going to have a seriously adverse effect on a patient. But they're not telling, they're not saying don't be a doctor. They're saying that even when we know we're going to make mistakes, we still have a responsibility to step up and do the best we can. And um, the rabbi and I have been talking about different cases where um, sometimes the problem, the mistake we make, isn't as bad as the cover-up or the lack of any response afterwards. Yes. So we're going to make a medical mistake. Do I wait all day and then the patient gets sicker? Or do I say, oh, I made this mistake. Um, 
let's address this now. So the issue is knowing that we are going to make mistakes, because I don't know about you guys, none of us are perfect. Maybe there's a perfect human out there, but I have not met them. And um, if they're perfect, I think that they're dreaming. So that's not not possible. So do we are we prepared as individuals, as teams, as organizations, um, as professions to support people when they do make that inevitable mistake? Because medicine is hard. And if you're going to do difficult things, you're going to make more mistakes than one would ever hope. You're trying new things. You're you're under pressure. There's a lot of there's a team communicating. There's miscommunication. There's all sorts of ways we can make mistakes, and we're not always alone in that mistake. So that that is my thought. I think that's profound and and so like I I really think that's the key is it's not trying to make a error-free place or error-free profession. It's having systems in place so yes. that not if, but when they happen, we're able to support the person to do a root cause analysis and see how did this happen so we can prevent it again. And more, most importantly, make sure that it is not like if a nail sticks out, it's ripped out. So make sure it's conducive for people to come forth and seek that counsel to make things right and learn rather than if you made a mistake, you're fired and all this stuff. And of course, I'm sure there's certain scenarios in extreme cases where that would happen, intent and everything else. But making a culture, I know, Jonathan, that this is a expertise and focus of yours as well as yours, Dr. Redshue, but having a culture that invites people to seek counsel rather than condemnation. And I think that's really the key and where a lot of people get stuck, either because they assume and it's their, they don't know this, but they assume that, oh, if I do this, I'll be gone. So I have to cover it up because I can't afford it. Like my family's financially supporting, you know, uh, relying on me and this and that. But to really have a system in place where you can bring that forth and learn from that. So I think a lot of times where people get stuck on this is they believe that if they bring it up, they're gone. They feel like it's not even worth talking about or trying to make a reconciliation. And Dr. Redshue, I see you nodding in agreement with this. Have you had clients, have you had cases where yes. this was the root cause behind the unethical behavior patterns that continued? Yes. And some systems make it easier. Um, in some systems, if you make a mistake in a minute, you are fired. But that is not a thriving system. That's... um a system gasping for air to be okay. And so maybe their margin of, of return, um, their, their profitability is so limited that they fire people. I believe that if we make a mistake and we admit it right away and we have a team that's that knows how to communicate, okay, Margarita just did this, what are we gonna do? Bum, 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 this is how we fix the patient right now. This is how we fix the chart mistake we made. This is how we take the potential liability, legal liability, and address it right away. And then look at the, as you were saying, the root analysis, like afterwards, do a debrief that helps us move the agenda of creating the ethical culture further. Yeah, there's, um, take again, take it out of the medical conversation for a moment, that traditionally it was prohibited for rabbis to take a salary to serve in a rabbinic position. 
because it was felt that the moment they are being supported by the congregation, they are now going to be subject to the pressures from the congregation and they won't be able to lead effectively. And it actually changed after the, um, the Crusades and the, and the Black Plague in Europe that um, there were such desperate times and it was so hard for people to support themselves and there was such a uh, paucity of, uh, of leadership that the only viable system was to was to have uh, people be paid to serve in a full-time capacity. But that was not ideal. And you mentioned, Adam, that when our livelihoods may be threatened by speaking up, we have a lot of reason not to. And then we can't do our jobs and we can't be ethical. So trying to create systems that minimize the extent to which our livelihoods influence our thinking um, is part of the way that we preserve an ethical system. Exactly. An ethical culture. Exactly. And, and thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. Uh, both of you made some really good points, but I want to dive into practical application. So what I've pointed out are what I have experienced and seen and heard from others um, who've come to me, you know, send me DMs on Instagram or, or reached out, email, whatever it might be of being in this place and shared these fears. If I blank, then worst case scenario. So they default to being silent and covering up the lie with more lies that becomes exhausting and eventually it comes out anyway. So my question is, if someone either has partaken in an unethical behavior or and or witnessed it in a colleague, is there a, a certain universal framework? I'm sure it varies based on your company and protocol and everything else. But what would you recommend to someone who has been a part of an unethical situation or witness something so that they can get rid of this guilt and use this to really learn from it and make right based on the situation? What would you recommend? How would you how would you take the first step with that? First step is the rabbi and I created a worksheet for this. Um, and so my first step is to check out our worksheet, which will make sure we give you a copy so people can use it, which takes you through the assessment and the problem solving of all the factors involved. The first thing is stop and think. What needs doing? What are the issues? Um, what are the risks? All of that. I think so. The first step is to do nothing but think. I know that sounds old fashioned, but uh, the, the rabbi and I are big fans of thinking Yes. Uh, as an action step, actually. It looks like you're doing nothing, but you are doing something very important. The next is to look the existing guidelines in our profession. Each profession has ethical guidelines and legal guidelines. Um, every employment place has also um, guidelines for employees, the, the code of conduct. Those are the initial guidelines to look at. Just about every uh, medical um, organization also has a lawyer that they have available. Some of them have hotlines. Some of them you can just call and say, I'm not sure what to do. What do we do now? Or I need you to know. So again, to know you're not alone. So think, look at the existing guidelines. And then I think you have a difficult decision. Yeah, and I, you know, I often say that there's no app for being ethical, and you know, and I talk, think there should be. <laughs> well, ideally, yeah, but uh, you know, the reality is that every case is different, and that's why, as the doctor said, it starts with thinking. We have to look at the situation. We have to look at ourselves honestly. 
and unflinchingly. And you know, and it's so much of it depends on the culture in which we find ourselves. If I if I find myself in a culture that's unhealthy, that that punishes honesty and forthrightness. I mean, <laughs> I, I was um, when I was teaching. I was once given a class teaching Hebrew, which is not one of my skills. I had three different. <laughs> I had three different levels of high school students in one class. And, and I divided up the two weaker levels and then I took the strongest ones and I put them in the back and I gave them a book. <laughs> and I said, do the best you can with this. If you need problems, let me know. And, and one of the mothers called me up and said, my daughter says, you're not teaching her. And I said, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I explained why. And guess what? I got called into the principal. You can't say that to a parent. I said, you put me in this situation. And I'm not going to lie to the parent and tell her that her daughter is being served when she's not. Now, maybe that got me in trouble with the, with the principal who fired me the next year. But... Um, <laughs> This is real talk, y'all. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, I mean, you know, there are consequences. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but there is karma. He was, law. Yeah. yeah, there's karma. He was fired the next year and uh, never held a job after that. So, you know, which is <laughs> you know, oh. unfortunate. But, um, you know, but the point is that I couldn't compromise my integrity or the 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 welfare of the student in terms of informing the parent what the real situation was and certainly in medicine the the consequences can be far more immediate and far more dramatic mm -hmm. than than in a school setting yes that, that that's so spot on true and uh that that worksheet that you mentioned that will be in the show notes for the podcast i sent it to you right now in the chat i got it there's yes. two pages and um I made it as a graphic um, uh, worksheet. This is something that I created quite some time ago and then the rabbi um, uh, improved it. We worked on it together. And actually, I think I sent you the, the, the one that isn't for ethics, but for difficult people, but it's the same issue. Yes. Uh, I will resend you the first page. Awesome. That'll be in the show notes so that everyone can access yes. that. And I, yeah. and I wanna really go to something very profound that we often overlook. A lot of times when we have a complex situation, like an ethical scenario, we assume that in order to solve a complex scenario, it must therefore only be solved by a complex solution. The reason that's flawed thinking is that if it's complex, it's going to be confusing. And if you are confused, you lose because you won't actually do the thing. But on the other side of that same coin, if we try to do something simple, we assume that simple is too easy and therefore ineffective. So it's not that simple is easy. It's quite not. It's just that simple happens because there's clarity on what to do. One simple action. And clarity is power. So going from that point, that simple is actually the way you solve complex situations. Also to thinking being, you know, that's so basic, like how could it happen? Well, regardless of if we're looking at an ethical situation, if you're trying to improve your health and fitness, if you're trying to 
improve your wellness. If you're trying to improve your finances, it doesn't matter the context. The first step to change is awareness because you cannot change something that you're not aware of. So if the first step in changing an ethical scenario is thinking, we have to backtrack and ask, well, what is a thought? Again, going really simple so we can implement it. A thought is simply a question and an answer. So if you're not questioning what happened, where did I go wrong? Where did the system fail me? How was I able to do this and live with myself or whatever you want to do about the context? You're not going to be able to identify what led to making that decision happen. So I really just want to emphasize, don't overlook the simplicity because that's actually what is the solution to the most complex issues. And I think that's a, a huge thing with any context, but specifically with ethics is it is complex. Absolutely. Because there's so many moving parts that contributed to it. But if we assume that we have to get complicated and confused to solve it, it ain't never going to get solved. So I really just want to harp on that because it, it's so, so important. And I, and I appreciate you for, for sharing that worksheet. I think that's going to help everybody that listens. And hopefully if you get this and, and you like it, please share this episode because I, I think one thing we can all agree on, regardless of what healthcare profession we're in, ethics is not easy. And it's something that transcends not just our individual professions, but our interprofessional collaborations, understanding others and the assumptions we all have. So I think ethics is so, so important. So please, if you if you found this valuable, please share this with anyone that you know, maybe someone that you work with, or maybe a student that you mentor. Because I think all of us looking back on when our careers started, one of our biggest fears when we go into or are about to start as a practitioner is I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to make a mistake. Let me give you a spoiler alert. You're going to make a mistake, but it's not what you do. It's how you choose to respond rather than react. It's going to make the difference in the quality of care of all people involved and the quality of career, which is really stemmed on the foundation of your integrity, which is a process that we live through and grow through. So with all that being said, give yourself a dose of grace and follow this process and use these resources because literally, like this is not hyperbole. These are the two world experts on this topic. Like I'm not saying that to make them feel good. It's a fact. So I'm really honored to have them here and I'm excited for the next question too. But before I go there, is there anything that that either of you wanted to tack on? Because I know that I've been <laughs> stealing I, the mic. I want to give it back. I, I did. The rabbi and I never short an opinion, either of us. Um, we ganged up together on a podcast, The Rabbi and the Shrink. And if you go to the rabbiandtheshrink.com, the handout will also be there. Yes. And as well as uh, links to other podcasts, they can get the handout from you as well. One of the things, psychologically speaking, that is a barrier to using the sheet or to living an examined life with any mistake or in our efforts to prevent one is being too harsh with ourselves or others. No one does that in healthcare. No. no <laughs> Either being too soft or too hard is kind of like the Goldilocks dilemma. You want to be the, with the one that's just right. And regardless of shame or guilt, I think having the courage to by yourself and invite advisors that 
have integrity and the ability to listen, ask questions and explore brainstorming solutions. That's what you need to find. Otherwise, no matter what worksheet you have, you're going to not find a solution that will help you and your system grow. That's and sometimes, you know, sometimes the answer is the, is the, sometimes the question is the answer. I mean, you mentioned Adam, um, you can make things very simple. And I was at the physical therapist uh, one day and uh, she was lamenting to me that she was renting a room um, in a doctor's office and she'd been ready there for years. And she'd become very, very good close friends with the doctor and his wife. And, but they kept raising her rent. And they were now raising it again to a point where she just couldn't afford to pay it. And she said, I don't know what to do. Um, I feel so grateful to them. I value their friendship. I like being here. And so I don't want to tell them I'm leaving. But at the same time, I just can't afford to pay what they're offering. And she had gotten herself into this binary mindset. And we say all the time that, you know, that's the one of the great enemies of ethics is thinking that I only have two choices. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, you don't have to make the choice. You pose it to them. You tell them, I want to stay with you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. I value your relationship, but I can't afford the price you're asking do you want to meet me at a lower price or should I look elsewhere? And by putting it onto them, she removed all of that tension and angst from herself. She offered two options, either of which was acceptable to her. They said, well, we need, we need to, to ask more for the room. So you'll have to look elsewhere. She did, she found a much cheaper place. She ended up saving thousands of dollars a year on her overhead. She retained the relationship. And as an interesting footnote, the last she heard, they still had not rented out the room. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, such an excellent example, Yonason. And you said something that's so profound that I really want to highlight. And that's the concept of choice. Because oftentimes when we're in these scenarios, we're so emotionally flooded with angst, with shame, with regret, whatever that might be, that we think and we trick ourselves emotionally to think that we don't have a choice. With every situation, you always have at least three options. And if you don't feel like that, I want to tell you on the inner workings what happens. And Dr. Reggie, I, I think you'll track with me. If you think you only have one option, you have no choice. If you have two options, you have a dilemma. But it's only when you have three or more options that you're actually at choice. And if you really look at it and are allowed to disengage from the emotion and look at it from a third party, you will always be able to find three choices. They're there, but you must look and create them much like your friend did, Jonathan, with that, with that scenario. That's interesting. That. The idea of three being the choice. I think even if there's only one option, there's a choice. Yes. And no one can dictate our ethics. No one can dictate the right thing. I mean, if we've got a bunch of hungry children to feed at home, it certainly sometimes feel like we have no choices. And sometimes we're in desperate uh, mode where we're totally in survival mode. And then we make choices we would normally not make, right? Yes. Just like in war, um, someone you don't say, well, I, I wanna kill people. But if you're in war, you have this moral dilemma and you can create moral injuries. You do have a choice, but 
but is it really a choice? Because you're in the military, you're going to have to face the fact that it is your job to protect and serve. And that mm -hmm. might include taking a life. So there's some win. choices that are hard to live with. So the issue of moral injury and being a com um, exhausted, compassionate givers, right? Mm -hmm. Those are two of the issues that keep us from being sharp and looking at the choices. And I think something that you said is something that a lot, I think every single healthcare professional, especially nowadays, uh, after it's not really over, but through the pandemic, we'll say, uh, that a lot of people can resonate with, and that is living in survival mode. It's not really living. It's just kind of existing. You don't feel like you're really living at all. You're just trying to make it through the day. So a lot of times we do things in that mode where we normally wouldn't do them, much like you said, in the state of war if you're in the military. So is there any sort of examples? And I'm, I'm really interested in this question because I'm sure you have seen many cases in, in extreme circumstances and the reason I want to hear these, and I want the listeners to hear them as well, is oftentimes it's through, like we were talking prior to the podcast, oftentimes it's through extreme examples that we can highlight the principles that can show up in seemingly smaller situations. But when ethics or a life is an example, it's, it's all significant. So are there any examples that you have of survival mode of, of cases where ethics were just totally not seemingly not involved and how those were resolved so that we can learn from them. Well, I'm thinking of a resident I just talked to yesterday um, who is exhausted, hasn't slept in, in I don't know how long and is feeling that she is not uh, making good decisions and is um, uh, way beyond peak performance. And yet this resident wants to uh, is devoted to medicine, wants to finish. There are no huge solutions other than to talk to the person above them in the chain of command. It's, everyone has a different breaking point for you know, being able to think well and react well. It depends on the cases and your health and all of that. I think regardless of how much we're in a terrible survival mode, kind of a do or die situation, we have to know what our limit is and negotiate that. I had a, have a dear friend who, um, when he was going through his medical residency, he got so burned out, so disillusioned, he became clinically depressed. Um, he hated the hospital politics. He hated the egos he was dealing with. He regretted that he had gone into medicine. Mm. And he didn't know what to do because he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans. He simply could not see a way out. Mm. And, you know, in a situation like that, there's no easy solution. Um, fortunately, he was able to get support from his wife, from his community, from his rabbi, from his friends, from me. And, and he, he, held on and he pushed through it. And now he's a very happy, um, successful radiologist. Um, but it was a very, very dark time for him. And sometimes we, we have to acknowledge that there's no good choice right now. There's no easy solution right now. 
I'm just going to have to lower my shoulder and push through. And if I don't have a support system, then I'm in real trouble. Mm. With the support system, as long as I can look ahead and I can see that there's light at the end of the tunnel, then I may be able to make it through. But without those, we can end up in a real difficult place. Well, and finding someone in the chain of command who is a compassionate um, problem solver. In if I know that I'm exhausted and I know that I can't do this particular procedure, I can't just shoulder through. I have to say something. If that means that I'm no longer eligible for this position or this opinion of me, then so be it. Um, you know, I'm glad your friend your friend had a lot of support, which I think is really wonderful. Um, I'm hoping that your friend also had some support on the medical team. Um, there's always somebody somewhere that can be, uh, I mean, during my um, residency, uh, it was a, um, a receptionist that kept me alive. I mean, she helped me at times when I was just exhausted and I was the only one in my year who spoke Spanish. So I was very busy, um, and had, had a big burden. Um, so I think not taking ourselves too seriously that that I'm the only one that can do this. Because if I am impaired, I'm impaired. I have to say something. The two biggest, I guess you could say antidotes or prevention strategies and solutions for feeling like you you cross the line, feeling like you're about to cross the line, uh, wondering, you know, is this possible? All, all of those areas that put us on like threat alert are to number one, seek wise counsel. And then number two, surround yourself or at least make yourself available or have availability to a supportive community that has some sort of compassion rather than a black and white, it's right or wrong type thing, but really being able to see the humanity through the principles, not, not to like say like, oh, we'll give you breaks, but to really connect and understand What's going on here so that we can navigate through this so that if you did cross that line, how can we circle back? How can we think and see what led to that so that we can learn from it, make it right by doing the, the legal, ethical things, and all of those sort of things, but to use it as a, an experience so that one, we don't do that again, but two, ensure that our systems and processes are in place so that nobody else does it either. Well, and medical training programs are learning from the brave souls who who do speak up and who document. And I think not only must I document my own struggle or my own concerns, but those around me can document as well. And then you have debriefs and you look at, you know, what happened, you know, this incident that happened and how, what contributed to it and how do we prevent it in the future? I think people being interested in the reality of good medical care has made us better and better in terms of training new people and hiring new people. And finding allies. Um, I, was, I was thinking of a case my wife had where uh, um, the woman that she worked under um, sent her an email um, castigating her for something that really there was no, there was no uh, um, infraction whatsoever, but CC'd like superintendents and, and other people on this email 
And, and my wife called a good friend of ours who's a, uh, a teacher and a lawyer. And um, he spent five hours in our house on a Sunday afternoon wow. helping her frame the response. Mm. And she had allies in her school and had the resources to draw on. You, know, you said earlier, doctor, that you know, find somebody in the system that, that can support us uh, one way or another. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, things worked out just fine. Yeah, especially since this supervisor was gone the next year. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they're not always happy endings, though. I mean, sometimes uh, sometimes you can't beat the system. Uh, and then then we have to, you know, have the integrity to say, well, I'm not going to let the, the system destroy me. I'll go deal with the problems, the challenges of finding a new system. Yes. Yeah, that, and I'm, I'm glad that that worked out and she had that support. And I think that highlights coming full circle back to one of the original points that was made, I think, by you, Dr. Redshu, is one of the, the leading catalysts to unethical actions is thinking that it's only you, like you're the only solution. It's all on your shoulders. And one that leads you to that, but also it can lead you out, not out like in a, a solution way, but out like, oh, I can't do this anymore, feeling like it's black and white, that whole framework of thinking. But also it's part of the solution. When you recognize that, yes, you have to do the work, you went to school for this, but you don't have to do it alone, which is the power of having wise counsel, having community, and being able to actually think and analyze and recognize if you are in survival mode, that should be an indicator, a red flag, a red light, whatever you want to call it, that you might not be in the process of making the best decisions because you cannot thrive if you are only trying to survive. So the key to live a life of fulfillment and full of ethics and whatever, however you define success that leads you to living your life on purpose is the one recognize if you're in survival mode, you've got to get out of that somehow. And again, you don't have to do it alone because oftentimes those before us have walked in your shoes as well. And they are more than happy to help you escape the pain that they were in for far too long. I think I speak for a lot of us. All of us are nodding because we've all been in those places before. Um, but but yeah, I, there, there's so many resources. And I'm really grateful for both of you for your time and your wisdom today for sharing that because both of you are resources. And, and speaking of, we have a resource that was mentioned that will be in the show notes. Show notes. Um, so that you can have that resource to see how do I handle an unethical situation that I'm noticing, that I'm in myself, or that I foresee happening in the future. So know that it's not just you. You can do this. You do have to do the work. You do not have to do it alone. And speaking of resources, um, all of the contact information, the social media contacts will be in so you can connect with both Rabbi Goldson and Dr. Redshoe. If you'd like to follow, which I highly encourage you to do, uh, their podcast, their platforms, and their content as they continue to be catalysts for change and sound ethics in the world of healthcare and beyond. So first off, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Um, just and if there's any parting words you'd like to share, uh, as well as where you're most active on social media, so that the listeners and viewers can connect with you and follow along uh, with more discussions just like this. Doctor? Um, the easiest way to reach me is drredshoe.com and on YouTube um, and LinkedIn. It's drredshoe.com. 
Um, and my last words is to ask the rabbi. Uh, rabbi and I each had, we'd spelled out the ethics and we came up with one together. But I like the way the rabbi says it. So rabbi, if you would, after you do your social media, could you close us off with ethics? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, you can find me on yonasongoldson.com. That's Y-O-N-A-S-O-N-G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. And uh, very active on LinkedIn, a little less so on the other uh, social media. And always uh, eager to make new connections and, uh, and continue the conversation offline. Um, the ethics acronym, basically the, the qualities that we need to be ethical, the E stands for empathy. And if we're not sensitive to other people, we don't know how to respond. The T is trust, which means that we have to be trustworthy and we have to be willing to trust others. The H is humility, recognizing that we can't do it all, we don't know it all, and that not everything is in our hands. The I is inquisitiveness, mm -hmm. be willing to learn, to admit what we don't know, and to be eager to understand more deeply, more widely. The C is courage, because doing the right thing can be hard, and there may be consequences we're not going to like. And the S is self-discipline, because this is not a checklist, it's a process. And we have to, as soon as you get to the end, we have to go back to the beginning and start over again. Put it all together, that's what creates the ethical mindset. It helps the ethical decision-making and helps us influence a culture to become an ethical culture. That is brilliant. I hope you trademark that. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Seriously. I'll send you a link to an article that spells it out. Beautiful. And that will be in the, all the resources mentioned will be in the show notes so that you can access them Great. with one click that quick. Thank you both so much. Uh, this has been such a rich conversation, lots to think about and lots to implement more importantly because knowledge is not power, it's only potential power. It's what we take and put into practice that allows us to practice at the highest level and dispense our full potential. So with that being said, Dr. Redshue, Dr. Rabbi Yonas and Goldson, thank you both so much for being guests. Uh, we were enriched by both of your presence and your wisdom today. So I appreciate both of your time and your wisdom. This has just been outstanding. Thank you both so much. It's been a delight. I thank love you, what Adam. you're doing. And thank you, doctor. Thank you. This has been Dr. Adam Martin with Dr. Redshu and Rabbi Goldson, bringing you the truth that you can implement and be the change that you wish to see in your profession and beyond. So go forth, be great, and dispense your full potential. Go be a blessing. Thank you.